0: Welcome to Doug's Open Mic, a podcast spotlighting local musicians, bands, and songwriters.
1: Hi there, Doug's Open Mic back again. This is episode number three. For those of you that don't know, this is a podcast featuring local musicians, basically from the southeastern New England area, think Westerly up to Boston, maybe out to Hartford, down to New Haven. Um, we talk about the local music. We do original songs. We have songwriters come in. Sometimes we talk technical stuff, you know, for you guitar guys that want to hear about some technical stuff about guitars and music and making music. Um, sometimes we talk about historical stuff. Westerly's got a great historical. Timeline of of great musicians and places still do it. Does great places in Westerly. We'll get into that. Um, we talk about the local music scene and maybe what you know, myself and the guests are kind of watching, and listening to these days. And finally, the other thing we do is I call it, for lack of a better word, making the sausage. We'll go into what it takes for budding musicians to go from the couch to the to the stage and. What's kind of going on out there behind the scenes that you might find interesting? It it is kind of cool, I have to say. So for today, I have my good friend, Craig Edwards, who's a local musician based over in Middle Mystic, Connecticut. Um, God, Craig and I go back so far. So (laughs) introduce yourself, Craig, and say a few things.
2: Um, So my name is Craig Edwards. I I do live in Mystic, and uh, I'm a professional musician uh, music teacher, ethno mu- <clears throat> excuse me, ethnomusicologist. Had to choke that one out. Uh, uh, and I've worked uh, both uh, as a touring musician and uh, uh, teacher of music. I teach traditional violin styles up at Wesleyan University. I teach out of my home on a number of instruments: fiddle, guitar, banjo, mandolin, button accordion. I've worked at Mystic Seaport on and off for many years, about over three decades now, and uh, as part of the music staff there, but I've also put together uh, recorded music backgrounds for a number of exhibits, both at Mystic Seaport and other museums. So that's another sort of line of work that I have. And uh, I've always been in love with... Sort of traditional American roots music since I was pretty small and managed to cobble together a living doing music that uh, follows that endeavor.
1: So also we have Ben Barber here who's our our technical guy and he's always welcome to ask insightful questions, which he does.
0: Someday I'm going to get you to just use the word producer off the bat. Oh, producer. That's
1: right. (laughs) Producer. (laughs) <laughs> it's okay, <laughs> and and, and uh, just just to off of Craig about the music lessons, I I took lessons for Craig for from he's a great teacher. Oh my god, he's got he's got the patience of Job. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like it, you never felt like you know, was like God, I can't get this, and it's like no, no, just okay. Hold on, we're gonna go in a little different direction here. That's fine, and, and also he's the type of teacher. I classify music teachers into two categories. There's the one category where, where, where you go to the music teacher and they have a rigid lesson plan. and you know, They're going to give you play guitar book number one, and you're going to do scales, and you're going to do things. And then, then when you get through that book, however long it takes, you go to book number two, and then you go through the. Craig, on the other hand, goes with the, well, what do you want to learn? It's like I mean, when I first started going to him, I was like, I want to learn this song. Okay, let's go. Here we go. So, so, good to know. Um, if you want to get in touch with him, we'll at the end here. We'll, we'll give uh, some. You know what? We'll do it now. Give some info if, if somebody wants to get a hold of you. If you want to
2: get a hold of me, you can uh, email me at fiddlecraig at gmail dot com. That's the best way to get a hold of me. Fiddlecraig at gmail dot
1: com. All right then. So. And the way I like to do these shows, again, we'll, we'll just kind of talk about Craig's, I call it the early years. So, you know, when did you start playing music, you know, I, I think, when, didn't you go up in Virginia? I'm kind of uh, thinking.
2: Virginia, North Carolina. I was born in North Carolina. We spent, spent uh, most of my childhood in Virginia. Uh, the town of Stanton, and we moved there when I was in third grade, and... uh at the time, and that was a long time ago, I'm, I'm, I'm ancient and crusty, you know, I, I, uh, I was, uh, so this is the early 70s, well, no, late 60s, it was the late 60s when we moved there, and there was a great music scene among teenagers in, in Stanton. Uh, Stanton has a great park that was made by uh, Frederick Law Olmsted, the same guy who made the park here in Westerly, um, and also Central Park and it's it's a beautiful place that had a bandstand in the middle and these high school rock bands would play there every weekend and i'd so i could go out there with my friends and hear these these young musicians really tearing it up um there were some great great players at that time uh another Early uh, spot that I did a lot of music was a, a coffee house called The Needle's Eye that was held in a church basement. And it was a, a all-ages space, we'd call it now, but but then it was just sort of a teenager coffee house. And it had a stage and, and a piano and a little bit of sound equipment and all kinds of people would, would perform there. Uh, I learned from musicians in the community uh and and uh took took a few guitar lessons here and there um, I remember when I was given my first essay assignment in uh in junior high school I'd been playing guitar for a few years, and I decided to write my essay on the history of the guitar in in america and that was the beginning of an exploration that has taken me where i've I've gotten to now, as I started to read interviews, you know, guitar player magazine was out then, and there were a bunch of books out about rock music and the history of rock music. It was a a flowering of writing about rock in that period. You know, writers like Nick Cohn and Grail Marcus were writing for these these magazines, trade magazines like Cream and Circus. Those were a couple of kind of teen fan magazines that were gave some pretty serious interviews. It wasn't just the, the sort of boy band kind of interviews that you can get in those sorts of magazines. And uh, Rolling Stone, of course. But as I started to do research on these guitar players, all of them were talking about listening to old recordings of blues players and early country music and old-time music. And I got curious about that and started to seek out recordings of people like Mississippi John Hurt and B.B. B. King and early uh, th- fiddle bands and started to be interested in playing other instruments than guitar and other styles than rock. And that trajectory took me where I ended up playing stuff that goes back into the 19th century. So...
1: So what did you come to Mystic about?
2: Came to Mystic right after I graduated from college. About a year, actually, after I graduated from college. I went to Wesleyan University up in Middletown. Ah. Majored in music with a concentration in ethnomusicology, which is a complicated word for just looking at music <laughs> in its cultural setting. That's all that really means. And, and looking at the relationship between music and culture. At the end of school, I was in a band... At, Um, When I graduated, a couple people in the band were still in school, but we'd, uh, we'd made a a record and we'd been getting some pretty, pretty cool work playing coffee houses and folk festivals and town greens and concerts. And uh, so the band was doing okay. And I uh, went on a tour actually of uh, Nova Scotia and Cape Breton that summer um, as the, one of the musicians backing up a, a clogging group doing the the mountain flat foot style of dancing um, that was based in Hartford. They were called the Mountain Laurel Cloggers. And they arranged this tour of Nova Scotia and Cape Breton that uh, took about, I don't know, four or five weeks. So I went up there with them and, and drove around, played music every night with a great fiddler named Paul Woodale and uh, my uh, banjo-playing friend Amy Davis, um,
1: so, at that time were you guitar?
2: I was playing guitar in that on that tour, just starting to learn the fiddle um, and And uh, when I got back from that i one of the people in the clogging team told me that a great way to have a flexible day job was to do substitute teaching, so I did that for about a year and a half and and kept playing with the band and and uh, people in the band stuck around actually after school, so the next year we uh we were still still going, and uh i I entered into another year of substitute teaching, getting pretty tired of it already. That's a hard row to hoe, you know, and I saw an ad for a job at Mystic Seaport Museum doing traditional music of sailors, and it also involved climbing up on the in the rig of the tall ships, setting sails. Uh, rowing whaleboats, doing other sorts of, of shipboard work as demonstrations, much of which in the middle of the 19th century was coordinated with songs called shanties. So I came down and took that job because it was uh, actually a full-time job playing music and uh, had benefits. And at the time, I was one of three staff musicians, so I had two days a week. Well, actually, I had three days a week uh, just doing music, and then a couple days of the week doing the demonstrations, which I had to do also, also as a musician. And then in the winter time, when the demonstrations didn't happen, I was in the tavern exhibit. There was no alcohol served. It was just an exhibit. <laughs> but wow. uh, see, I always but, like but that's, my, a shame. that's a I shame. I always
1: yeah. like my listeners to have alcohol. Well well, there you go, so
2: I was in the tavern exhibit all winter long with with uh with my instruments and uh and a and a coal stove so i I got paid to just sit there and practice a lot of the time and then visitors would wander in and I'd play some music and talk to them and uh and then for a while, there were only two of us, one of the three musicians left, and there were only two of us so i had I had five days a week just playing music all day for a couple of years, and that was that was a really important piece of my uh development Um, but continuing to play other styles of music as well and the band i was in sort of uh, morphed into two bands one of which continued to play traditional southern style string band music and some irish music and the but the second band um we'd been that that clogging team i told you about had been hired to play at the Esquihig, Rhode Island uh, Labor Day weekend festival that at that time was called the Cajun and Bluegrass Festival. And we came along to back them up. And there was a great roster of Cajun and Zydeco musicians from Louisiana playing on the main stage. And I was just smitten with that music. It was cool, rocking music that you could get People to couple dance to. So what you know people will shy away sometimes from square dancing or contra dancing. It just seems a little too organized to them. But couple dancing, now that's cool. You know, you can and it's sexy and romantic. And especially this Cajun and Zydeco dancing um, is 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 just great couple dancing. And I'd already started to play the button accordion because there was one at Mystic Seaport. So I started working on Cajun Accordion. And Uh, Within a few months, we had started playing uh, Cajun music and just flowed right into a Cajun and Zydeco music revival and and popularity that partly stemmed from movies like The Big Easy, which which exposed a lot of people to that style of music. It meant that bands from Louisiana were touring all over the country and playing all kinds of venues, um, and there was a dance community that was... Initiated by this festival in Rhode Island, which has been around now for close to
1: forty years, I think. Did that turned into the Rhythm and Roots.
2: That, that's now the Rhythm and Roots Rhythm, Festival yep. Yep. in Ninigret, Rhode Island. Still run by Chuck Wentworth, who uh, was just was and is an incredible advocate for American roots music in this region. He's he also runs the Gray Fox Festival, um, which is a, a bluegrass and acoustic music festival. Just an extraordinary uh, promoter and and advocate for traditional music styles and social music styles and and the uh, blends of roots music that have been so influential, especially in the last fifteen years in American popular music
1: so that Cajun band is that what the one you 're still kind of in that with? band
2: originally was called the Swamp Cats, yeah, and then there was a band down in North Carolina called the Swamp Cats, and as we started touring they uh they they were all lawyers, so they wrote us a pretty scary letter. <laughs> uh, Said you have to change worst, your name. Yeah. That's the that's so, the worst situation. We changed the name to the the Cats, and uh, there's a band Wait, in, I think in, it's a better
1: name actually.
2: It, well, I like the Swamp Cats better, but there's a band in California called the Zita Cats, but they're in California, and they don't have so lawyers. they don't and, and they're, they're probably not. not they're lawyers. not all lawyers, yeah. so <laughs> and they use a K for cats. We just used the C. Um, and that band was very active for, for many years. It's, uh, we've moved a little further apart. We don't play as regularly now, but we still do get together and play every now and then. Um, the string band, likewise, uh, continued for many years. And, and then as people moved apart, the personnel changed some. And uh, eventually, I was the only original member of the band left. But that I'm still playing with, with a string band that, that derives from that band. And we play old-time music. String band blues, early country music, a little bit of Cajun music. They're called the Root Farmers.
1: Hell yeah! Yep. Yeah. Is um Brian Slattery in that one?
2: Brian Slattery plays in that occasionally. Yeah. Oh
1: man, he's so good.
2: Yes, he is. <laughs> great yeah, New yeah, Haven yeah, musician, yeah, New yeah, Haven area.
1: We'll have to get him. Plays the fretless banjo. Like, uh, you'd have to see it to believe it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um,
0: backtracking uh a little bit. What was the year that you um? Like that—that that you said you you had just gotten out of school and you were playing with the band and some of the people were still in school and you made an album, uh, um, uh, you made a record. Yeah, that um, was nineteen
2: eighty three. So,
0: what was the process of making a record like for for a bunch of you know kids uh, just just out of school kids um, young
2: adults in nineteen eighty three? Because I,
0: I imagine it's a it's a lot more difficult than it is now.
2: It some things have changed. I mean. We were recording onto tape, and that's, that's a big difference in, in some ways. Um, studios were more expensive uh, because the tape process was, and, and, the, and just the tape itself was expensive, and editing was, you know, when you say cut and paste, they were taking a razor blade and cutting tape and, and pasting it, but all that being said, our music was, was very well rehearsed at that point. And for us, it was mainly a process of just getting a good take live. We weren't overdubbing very much. Um, We had a couple guest musicians come in, and uh, like we had a we on one of our Irish, uh, we did a couple of Irish medleys, and we had a concertina player named David Payton from Northwestern Connecticut come in and put concertina on tracks we'd already recorded, but. That was that was just straight ahead overdubbing it wasn't you know didn't involve a whole lot of editing and then the the mixing process is really pretty similar to what to, to now, what, yeah. what you do today, so just because of the style of music that we're doing and, and the way that we that, that you would want to approach it in the studio, we weren't going in and laying down one instrument and then, you know, we didn't have drums right we didn't right. have drums or a click track yeah it was a matter of of you know. Really, I was when I was playing guitar in that band. Two of us switched off on guitar. I'd I'd play guitar while my friend Tom played mandolin, and then when when he played guitar, I was on fiddle. Um, and and we had another fiddler and a banjo player, and and the banjo player also played uh, Irish flute and tin whistle. And she was the then uh, when we started that man started doing the Cajun and Zydeco. She was the rubboard player, but uh, backtracking a little, but the. Recording process was, was fairly straightforward in that regard. Um, yeah. Cool.
0: Thanks. I just was interested in uh, you know the differences between then and now.
2: We can return to this conversational fork later if you like, because there's, there's some <laughs> other interesting stuff I can talk about from uh, my, much more recent.
1: Awesome. So, so um, back to the, because I've heard Craig talk about this before and I find it very interesting, is that the whole sea shanty thing. Explain to people how this whole sea shanty thing, what they were, because I don't think most people know.
2: There's a lot of uh, myth surrounding and misinformation surrounding the songs that sailors called shanties and that, that the general public called sea shanties. So I'll try to give a brief debunking and, and uh, re-education about what a sea shanty is. There weren't songs that were sung on European or American ships coordinating music until about the 1820s or 30s. That tradition didn't exist before that because from the time of Columbus up to the end of the Napoleonic Wars, merchant ships going to sea operated just like naval vessels. They carried cannons, they had huge crews, and therefore the work of sailing the ship the techniques that the the sailors used were based on having a large number of hands to do anything. That situation happened because that's the whole period where European maritime powers are building empires and they are therefore constantly at war. There's 300 years of warfare at sea. That's why there was so much piracy then, right? That's why the Pirates of the Caribbean thing happens and why the the Dutch East India Company and the, the... British East India Company, those, those organizations were quasi-military organizations. They, they, they were fighting each other. They were fighting, the enemy navies were fighting. After the Napoleonic Wars, that situation changes suddenly and completely. Merchant ships didn't have to carry cannon anymore. Therefore, they didn't need huge crews anymore. They also didn't need as many extremely experienced sailors to maneuver a ship in a naval battle the number of men in the crew of a merchant ship in the 1820s is slashed by about 70%. All right, so if you'd had 100 men on your ship, that same ship with the same rig, the same weight of gear that you got to operate by hand, you know, bringing up anchors, raising sails, bracing sails, doing all this strenuous work that takes a lot of strength and focused force, all of a sudden there aren't that many people to do it. And where in an early time, you could throw 30 guys at a rope, they could pick it up and march down the deck with it to raise a big sail that might be hanging from a yard that that weighs two and a half tons and is 80 feet long. And you have to raise that yard 30 feet up the mast to stretch the sail out. Now you might only have eight or 10 guys to do that same job, and they can't get it started by marching. They have to plant their feet far apart drop their rear ends down, lean over their forward knee, get their hands as far out in front of them as they can, all standing in a row in that position along the line, and then in one big twitch, snap that line back and then quickly move their hands forward, hand over hand up the line. So every time they get one of those big tugs on the line, they've concentrated all the force in the very beginning of the pull And that yard, instead of getting dragged up, jumps with each pull. So it's a snap and swing, as one sailor called it. Coordinating that precisely was essential. You can do it by saying, one, two, three, one, two, three. But that's not very inspiring. Fortunately for sailors, in that period, there were people from a cultural background that used song to coordinate work. That was not a European culture. Europeans don't do that because Europeans on land had draft animals, oxen and, and draft horses and mules. South of the Sahara Desert, there aren't any draft animals. You can't domesticate and train any species down there to do that kind of work. They don't have the right instincts. So humans south of the Sahara Desert had developed over millennia, sophisticated ways of using music to coordinate effort. And it's more than just singing while you work. That's really important to understand. It's understanding exactly how the rhythm and the psychological inspiration and the melody interact so that when you infuse them into the work, it's supremely effective. So on the decks of these ships in the 1820s, where 20 to 25% of the workforce on American ships is African-American, over and over you'd have these situations where people just weren't able to get the job started until somebody who knew how music worked to get that happening started singing and the rest of the people on the line who knew how to respond responded. And that's how sea shanties are invented. The word shanty doesn't appear in print until the 1850s and there is no detailed description of sailors doing that until the late 1830s so this is only our third
0: episode but um that's the best story that's ever been told on this podcast (laughs) so far uh that was fantastic um so i just want to say doug um and craig uh would you like to end this um, episode? First of all, Doug said before um, we got you, like last week we were having a meeting about this, and he said, Craig's going to be great. We could probably get like six episodes out of him. Um, and he's absolutely right. Uh, but would you like to um, play a, uh, a shanty?
1: Oh, he hates shanties. He <laughs> hates shanties? <laughs> would you oh, oh, to, boy. I, oh boy, <laughs> oh <laughs> well, boy. That's too. not strictly true. I would
2: I do hate being to, pegged As a sea shanty guy, right? Let me let me talk very briefly about what happens after that. Okay, which is that when folklore, the field of folklore at the end of the 19th century, is a very nationalistic and and ethnocentric endeavor. Right. British folklorists decided that because British sailors sang shanties, it must be an ancient British practice, despite the fact that they would admit in print that there's no documentary evidence of people singing on british ships before the 19th century right that nationalistic view entered the the zeitgeist. general the yeah. zeitgeist and folklorists throughout the 20th century characterized shanties as this sort of elbow swinging british isles Thing, and everybody sings a shanty with an Irish accent, right? <laughs> yeah. That's because the Clancy brothers sang shanties during the early folk revival. Yep. But in the 19th century, a, an Irishman would much more likely imitate the way he thought a black man was singing than the other way around.
0: Right? Oh. Okay. So what I'll
2: what I'll sing for you here are the two two of the earliest uh, uh, songs that speak to this development. I'm going to sing you the earliest uh, African-American song that anybody has yet found that somebody wrote down both words and melody for in Western notation, 1832. The song is called Round the Corn Sally, and it was used to bring harvest into the barn. The second song I'll sing is also um, written down in the... 1830s, not yet called a shanty, but from the very first full description of sailors singing on board a ship. So here's how that works. Hooray, hooray, round the corn sally hooray for all the lovely ladies round the corn sally love's a thing that's bound to grab you round the corn sally hold you tight when once she have you round the corn sally old and ugly young and pretty round the corn sally you need not try when once love gets you round the corn sally and here's the second one. Round the corner we will go, round the corner, Sally, around Cape Horn through the frost and snow, round the corner, Sally. Oh, and we roll around Cape Horn, round the corner, Sally. You'll wish to God you'd never been born. Round the corner, Sally. Oh, haul away and make your pay. Round the corner, Sally. Let's get this yard hauled up today. Round the corner, Sally. It's one more pull and that will do. Round the... High enough! Which is the command you'd hear at the end of that song. So you can hear how the second song derives from the first.
1: Yeah. So on, on the Shanty though, there's another thing that, again... Part of the show, we're going to tell people little things that are around this area that people probably don't know about. Once a year at the Old German Club in in Mystic, they have we, we, that sea shanty get together.
2: Well, there's there's one. Uh, it's it's the first weekend in January um, that is is a fundraiser for the annual sea music festival that happens at Mystic Seaport, uh, which happens just happened actually uh, the last or two weekends ago. Well, so, yeah, two weekends ago at this point. Um, so the, sec- the fir- first, yeah, the second weekend in June, second full weekend in June. And we bring performers from all over the world, from indigenous cultures. We've had people who still do uh, uh, small boat whaling in the old style from the, the um, Western Caribbean um, and sing rowing songs. We've had uh, Inuit people who, who do whaling we had We've had people from Brittany and Japan and uh all kinds of places um a- as well as european uh other european traditions and then of course people who do sort of historic recreations of the nineteenth century shanties and so that festival also has songs at what's called the German club or the fro social hall. Um, on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night of that weekend, and you'll have 150, 180 people in that, in that room. Oh, it's amazing. About 120 of whom are really good singers. And anybody can get up and lead a call-and-response song, and that whole room will, will raise the chorus, and it's astonishing.
1: All right. Um, I think that's it. That's it for the, this will be number, episode number three. We're not finished with Craig, so episode four will be forthcoming. Until then, everybody, have fun.